The Steve Lobby Agency presents The Christian Publishing Show, a podcast for writers who want to advance Christ's kingdom using the written word. Here's your host, Thomas Umstadt Jr. It is possible to make a full-time living as a writer. One way to do it is to write one book that sells a million copies. But another, more reliable way to do it is to write a bunch of bass hits. Instead of swinging for the fences, you swing to get on bass, and then you do it again and again. And our guest today makes a full-time living with her writing, and she gets on bass. She's written over 70 books on a variety of topics, and whether it's offering critiques of a writing sample, helping with formatting, helping with marketing efforts, or redesigning an ineffective book cover, she has a passion for serving the author community and helping other authors make money with their writing as well. Shatona Havoc, welcome to The Christian Publishing Show. Thank you so much for having me, Thomas. It's good to see you again. So how did you get started with writing in the first place? Um, that was a That was in cathartic thing. Um, I, I had eight kids at the time and people kept asking me, how do you do it with eight kids? I can't do it with just the two I have. I'm falling apart. And I'm thinking I was falling apart with two. I'm falling apart with eight, but you don't get them all at once. You know, you get them one at a time and people didn't understand that. And I got so frustrated that I wrote a story about a girl who inherited her eight nieces and nephews when she was 22. So you basically wrote your own story. Ish, I didn't inherit. I had mine one at a time the old-fashioned way. But (laughs) – and then – and it just – that little 60,000-word book got expanded and split into four books that are all over 100,000 words each, and it has been my bestseller. And that was your initial series. So you wrote this one book. You – did you pitch it to agents? Did you take that traditional or did you take that independent? No, what I did actually is that I wrote another book. I I liked that one a lot and I thought it had more commercial value. But there was another one I'd been playing with and I thought, okay, I'm going to take this one. I don't recommend doing this, by the way. But I'm going to take this book and I'm going to try this indie thing. And I'm going to see if I like it before I actually make a decision as how I'm going to do this. And so I put that book out there with every mistake in the book. And I do mean everyone. It was horrible. I just re-released that book, completely rewritten with a new cover and everything, new title, the whole nine yards, because that poor book, what I did to it was cruel. But you didn't know that at the time. I bet when it came out, you're like, this is a masterpiece. No, I knew it wasn't a masterpiece. <laughs> <laughs> but I knew that I knew that I enjoyed that process. And so I decided, well, maybe I'll just do the indie thing. And then, but I didn't know how to market and that's obviously, I, I can't sell anybody, I can't sell my stuff to anybody, but I can sure help you find what you're looking for. So when I learned that that is actually all marketing is, then I was, I was doing a whole lot better. So you wrote this first book. It wasn't very good, but no. you got a taste for this writing bug. And so then you went back to your book zero that yes. you'd written first, which this is really common. Uh, your book zeros would have probably been way worse than book one, even as bad as book one was, and you had to go back and fix it. Oh, it would have been. I started all over, wrote that whole thing over, and added about um, about 300 to 350,000 words. <laughs> so, so I really want to underline this because this is so common. I've, I've been doing, I've been talking with interv- authors and interviewing authors uh, for years, and it is rare, very rare, to find an author whose first book 
is actually their first book. That first book is like a practice book. <laughs> and it's for you to get better as a writer. It is not for the market. And the one thing I find that holds so many authors back is that they are holding on to that first book with white knuckles and they won't put it down. They won't let it be the learning experience that it was. They're not willing to move on to their next book. And as you write more books, you become a better writer, which helps you get more readers, which helps you write better books. And it's this wonderful, virtuous cycle. But you can't start that cycle until you're willing to put the first book down. Right. And the, I don't think a lot of people say you just abandon it forever. I don't think you have to, but you have to be willing to absolutely slaughter those darlings because those darlings are wolves in sheep's clothing. You got to kill them. <laughs> I mean, in, in one sense, you did abandon the book, right? And it's a version as a 60,000 word book. That book doesn't exist. But you didn't abandon the characters and you didn't abandon the story. And I think th there's a really important distinction there. Right. Well, I set it aside. No, no. And a lot of the lines are still there. I mostly added to it and cut some fluff. But I, I added way more than I cut, you know, but it was it, was, it read like a laundry list. <laughs> <laughs> Which is not a very interesting book. So uh, you, you wrote your initial book that came out and then you took book zero. You chopped it up into four little pieces. You planted them in your little writer garden and they grew up into a virtuous field. But how did you go from those initial four or five books to the 70 books you've written today? Like, how do you approach your writing process? Well, first I had, again, I wasn't marketing. And so these little books were languishing. And then I, I saw someone who did this thing and I didn't understand it. And I was commenting on a message board I was on for homeschool moms, okay? Because this is where you go for advice, right? But, <laughs> but I was like, I don't understand that. This guy says that you join this KDP program and you put your book for free for four days and then you get out of the KDP program and you make a lot of money. And I'm like, I don't understand how on earth that can work. And it doesn't really work that way anymore. But at the time, it actually was a strategy people used. And I thought it was ridiculous. And this gal on my board said, oh, yeah, that works. That, that's, a, that's a really good program. But it's a strategy. You want to do that. And I was like, how do you know? <laughs> Turns out she was a marketer. And she became my publicist. And without her, I would never have learned how to market. And I, my books would have never been seen. But she put my, she did what she did and she put my book up for free. She put Ready or Not up for free. And in 24 hours, we had 33,000 downloads. And I had about $50 in my KDP account that the morning that it went to free. And by the end of the week, I had over 6,000. And so I realized that she knows what she's talking about. And she, uh, whatever she says to do, I will do. And I ended up being a five-figure author for quite a while because of her, which was super cool. And, and a lot of people are like, but you gave your book away for free. How do you make money off of a free book? And the thing to realize is that your enemy is not piracy. It's obscurity, right? Your right. challenge was not that people were stealing your book. Your problem was no one knew who you were. Exactly. And then suddenly 6,000 people knew who you were and they liked what they saw. Right, because having six thousand people know who you are, or a million people know who you are, and they all read your book and they're like, "Ugh," <laughs> right? Now you're dead, right? Because now they're not going to touch you again, and, and you're worse off than you were. Yes, fail faster. Right, good marketing helps a bad book <laughs> fail faster. It's, you know, I'm quoting lots of marketing cliches here, uh, but they're but they're true, right? You know, we repeat them because they're true. So you had six thousand people who read that free book, 
And then they went on and they started exploring your other books. And was the free book the first in a series? Or Yes, it was the first in the series. And so that month I did, so that week, it was the last week of the month, and I did $6,000. And then the next month was July, and that was the month where my grandson was electrocuted. And it was the coolest thing because, I, that sounds horrible. I can't believe I just said that. <laughs> As somebody who's been electrocuted, I can say, would not recommend (laughs) zero stars. Yeah, no, but what happened was, here's my grandson spending a month in the burn unit for, I mean, he should be dead, and he's in the burn unit, and my daughter didn't have insurance. And I was like, how are we going to pay for this? I don't know how, how are we going to do this? And I looked at my Amazon when my publicist messaged me. She's like, check it out. I went and looked and I had $15,000 at the end of that month. And I went, oh, God's got this covered. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So she was, she was amazing and I miss her, but it's good that I have to do it myself too. So you're in good company not liking marketing, right? You talked several times about at the beginning of your story, you didn't like marketing, you didn't do marketing, right? I feel like that's a lot of Christian authors. Why is it so hard for Christian authors to get into book promotion and platform building? I think there I think there's a dual thing. A there's personality. Mine happens to be personality. I think that the laborer is worthy of his wages. I have no problem whatsoever people getting paid for what they do. And so that isn't a problem for me, but a lot of Christians feel like they shouldn't be charging for what the Lord has given them. And I say, well, but what does scripture say? Because that's not what the Bible says. And you know me, I'm all about what does the Bible say? So when you go into what the Bible says, it says the laborer is worthy of his wages. And that means that when an author spends literally hundreds of hours of research and hundreds of hours of writing and editing and all the ings, what happens? They, they, they should be paid. And, but for me, it was a matter of, I'm just, I, I'm not, it's not, I'm naturally a very shy, introverted person. I have to force myself to be gregarious and it's not natural. But once I get going, then I do a little better. <laughs> and, and that's how it feels to me is that part of it is that personality. But when I realized that marketing and advertising essentially are two different things, my world exploded and I went, oh, I can do this. Because they're not the same thing in my mind. That's right. And going back to what you said about the laborer being worthy of his wages, it's not that the Bible doesn't say one way or the other whether or not you can get paid. It's like, well, it doesn't forbid it, so it must be okay. No, the Bible has specific instructions in both the New Testament and the Old Testament. And, And not just like vague, like, oh, it's okay for Christians to make money. No, Christian workers, like people in the church, like professional Christians, it is okay to be a professional Christian, to be paid for doing Christian work, whether you're a pastor up on front or you're a missionary or you know, or you're a Christian author, it is okay for you to get money. In fact, that's just okay. That's, that's It's in, right. Yeah, it's like, it's what's supposed to happen, right? If you're not getting paid, you have a distorted, twisted view of money and you need to repent from that Amen. and be willing to say <laughs> yes as people are wanting to give you money. In SoCal, when we did that workshop in SoCal, when you were there, I really wanted the title to be, Jesus won't send you to hell for marketing your book. But we kind of <laughs> figured they wouldn't let us. <laughs> but but promotion, getting the word out, like that's a thing in the Bible, right? People yeah. are, you know, are getting the word out about a lot of things, and that's okay. It's okay to tell stuff, to tell other people about what you have going on, as long as the promotion is a means to an end ultimately of, of glorifying God, right? If you're trying to do it to glorify yourself, you're going to feel really guilty about it. And I think that a lot of Christians, part of the reason why they struggle is that they haven't done the work, the spiritual work, the groundwork 
to examine their motives. And, and I think a lot of people are writing, they think because, you know, God's called me to write and I need to do this, it's important, and, that's, and that may be part of the motives, but they're also writing because deep down they need validation. They want other people to validate them. And it's because they feel insecure, they feel inadequate, they don't feel that validation fulfilled at home or for whatever reason. And so they don't feel like they can promote their book because the whole point of the book is to make them feel validated, which means they can't touch it. I can't do it. I need other people to do it. I need other people to promote it so that I can feel validated. And these are the kinds of people who often make the most noise about not being motivated by money, not caring how many copies they sell. And it's, it's hard for me not to roll my eyes because I know how, but also to grieve because I know how toxic that thinking is, right? If that's your thinking, if you don't care about the money and you're just doing it because you want to be validated, you're not going to get readers. You're not going to change the world. You're not going to make an impact and you're not going to get your validation. (laughs) Right? Well, that's what I, Thomas, that's exactly what I tell people. I'm like, the only way to know if your book is doing what you wrote it to do to impact people and make changes in their lives, the only way you can know that is to see those dollars because that's the only way you know someone read it. I mean, that's how you make money is you bless other people and they choose to give you money as a thank you for blessing them, right? Oh, I was hungry and you made a meal for me. Here's some money. Thank you for blessing me. <laughs> right? Yes. <laughs> and, 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 and now this is an Old Testament kind of book of Proverbs way of thinking about money, right? And it's, you can say it's a Pharisee way of thinking about money, but it's in the Bible, right, that, that uh, wealth is a reward for the righteous, right? There's this, it's repeated over and over again in Proverbs can't just spend time in Proverbs. I don't recommend reading a proverb a day unless you have a chaser. And that chaser is the book of Ecclesiastes, which comes right after Proverbs for a reason. (laughs) So everything in Proverbs is true, but it's not the whole truth. And you can get, um, you can go too far the other way. Like, hey, I'm going to be righteous. I'm going to get the reward of righteousness, right? God takes money away from the wicked and gives us the righteousness. It's all true. It's in the book of Proverbs. But if you read the second book from the same guy, he's like, yeah, but... It's all meaningless and grasping for the wind. And you need that um, perspective because it's a tension that, yes, God does take the money from the wicked gives to the righteous. But it's also true that ultimately it's meaningless. And what really matters is fearing God and obeying his commandments. Amen. We're getting into preaching here on the Christian Publishing Show, but that's okay because it's the Christian Publishing Show. So, but I want to get back to the marketing and uh, talk a little bit about you know what should believers not do when promoting their books. What are some pitfalls you see Christian authors fall into? One of the one of the biggest pitfalls is the idea that if they don't do anything, at least they're safe because. You know how they said, you know, there's that old saying that says, not leading is still leading. Not marketing is still marketing. It's negative marketing. It's it's saying that there's no value in your work and people will figure that out. But it's still, it's still important and it's still, you can't just ignore it. People, one of the biggest pitfalls I see people have is they take this marketing thing and they discredit it as I I don't know what I'm doing. So I'll just put my book up on Amazon and trust God to take care of it. And that's just like, yeah, that's like I've got a dying baby and I'm going to set it on a park bench somewhere and hope that a doctor comes by and saves my baby. It doesn't work that way. You have to... you have to do something. Well, that's not how trusting God works either, right? Like if you look at the heroes of the faith, they trust God by taking courageous action and they trust that God will work through that action. Uh, laziness is not the same as 
holiness. And fear is not the same as holiness. If you're afraid to act, if if you're the um, servant who takes your talent and you bury it in the ground and you trust that God's going to multiply it, you're a wicked servant, right? You have to go out and do the work to, to multiply what God has given you, those um, blessings that God has given you. You've got to do the work and to make them multiply, right? Those servants did work. They invested. They did activity. And that was a go-to parable that Jesus shared, right? It's talents. It's minas. The number of servants change. He, you can tell that he told <laughs> right? that a lot, right? <laughs> And and part of it is, I think people are, I think you mentioned fear, and I think that's a, a good word, but I think sometimes we assume the fear has to do with someone's not going to like my book. I'm afraid of that. I don't think that's always the fear. I think a lot of the fear is, is, a, is because of ignorance, I guess is the right word. I, that feels harsh, but they don't know what to do with it. They don't want to waste their money. And because they don't know how and they don't know what to do, they actually end up wasting the product, the book, instead of their money. Or their time. And, and one of the things I see a lot w- with authors is that they don't value their time as being very valuable. And so they spend their time on things that while they give a return, it's not a very good return. It's like, I'm going to dig this ditch and I'm going to dig it with a, you know, a garden trowel. It's like, man, if you would invest in a shovel, if you would invest and rent a machine, this thing that you've been doing for a month, you could do in an hour, right? There are machines that can dig very quickly, but they cost money. And you can make more money, but you can't make more time. Your time is limited. And so you need to treat your time as being valuable, which means taking tools, right? spending money on tools so that you can make more money, right? This being... um wise with your money and being pound wise and not just penny wise. And, and and the correct answer is not always spend as little as possible. It's not always spend as much as possible either. It, yeah, exactly. It's not. It It's spend what you need to achieve what you need. That's right. And, and the first thing that I recommend that people spend their money on before they hire you know, a virtual assistant and before they, you know, hire a marketing company and a PR company is to invest in education. (laughs) And it doesn't have to cost a lot of money to get educated, right? We have really inexpensive course at the Christian Writers Institute, but there's an even cheaper source of education and it's called books. (laughs) You can buy books (laughs) on writing, you can buy books on marketing, and those will help you as you spend your money to spend your money on the right things and on the right people, right? There's a lot of con artists out there and there's a lot of people who really know what they're talking about. And, and they being mess educated, me up. <laughs> yeah, helps you know right. who is good and who's not, right? You can, and if you don't know anything, it's really easy to get bamboozled by the charlatans. Oh, oh my, I, we've got a couple people in town that gave a certain company, and I know you know which one I'm talking about, a boatload of money for nothing, and, you know, the, the covers were atrocious, the editing was atrocious, the marketing was non-existent, and yet they're out thousands upon thousands of dollars. And they're like, how do you make money at this? I'm like, I don't do what I just told you not to do and you did anyway. That's what I, how I make money at this. I, I got an email earlier today by accident. It was somebody who was interacting with one of these, self, one of these predatory self-publishing companies. Oh. And I, I suspect it was a God thing that caused her to email me because she was negotiating over or adding some questions about something about the contract. And so I was like, be careful. This company doesn't have a good reputation. I sent a link to an article about some of the bad practices. And then I also put, they're not in the Christian writer's market guide. <laughs> it's like, if, if, if you are specifically yeah. not listed in that guide and you're in indie publishing, that is a big red flag. And, and the indie authors that are making a living are all using one of two companies for their publishing. 
really. There's just right. two yeah. that I see. There's, there's just the two. That are making a living, and it's Amazon and it's Ingram. <laughs> yes. Those are That's it. Those are the only two where you're making a living. Now, it doesn't mean you can't have a successful book, and there are reasons um, to use companies like BookBaby if you're needing more help. But just realize that those companies are going to cost a lot of money, and it's a lot harder to make a living. And as you get good and as you get profitable, you use the you do it yourself and you hire people yourself and you don't have a company like that hires your editor and hires your cover designer. You hire your editor and you hire your cover designer, which allows you to get both a better cover and a better editor and spend less money because you're not paying the middleman because that middleman takes most of the money. So the editor who you're paying $60 an hour for is only getting paid $20 an hour. So you're getting a $20 an hour level editor, but you're paying a $60 an hour price because the 40 bucks are going to that other company. So instead, hire a $60 an hour editor and have an amazing book <laughs> or split the difference and hire a $40 an hour editor and save a little money and get a much better edit. Yeah, I, the I took when I started with that very first book that I did I was like, okay, I don't want to put tons of money into this, mistake number one, because I don't know if I actually want to do this, mistake number two. And so I went I went online and I'm like, okay, how do you get a good edit free or almost free? And this is the advice that I kept finding. I can't even find this advice online anymore to show as an example. It's not there. It's like they've taken it down. I know somewhere it's buried, but I'm telling you, I can't even find it anymore. But they said, find 10 gra- grammar Nazis in your social network send it to the first one have them just fix it in there don't come back and do anything again it corrupts the file and then you send it to the next one it's a round robin of edits and by the time you get it back it's perfect yeah it was worse than when i sent it out (laughs) but i didn't know it because i believed them like i was so naive and so i sent out this book with this hideous cover and then this horrible horrible editing. There was no developmental editing in it. It needed developmental editing. Someone needed to say, yeah, we don't use omniscient anymore. You don't want it in everybody's head. I'm like, oh, okay. I didn't know that. Well, drat. I read way too much um, 19th century fiction. <laughs> uh, and, and I want to stop you real quick because that's a really important point. A lot of people think that editing is just fixing typos. And that's kind of like saying, I'm going to hire, I need to build a house and I'm going to hire a handyman who's good at repairing light fixtures. And it's like, there's a time while you're building your house to repair and install the light fixtures. But if you don't have the blueprints, if you don't have the architecture, if you haven't decided what number of rooms to have, that handyman can't help you, right? The first thing you need to do is talk to an architect. And there's a certain kind of editor who helps you with the architecture of your book. And it's called a developmental editor or sometimes a substantive editor. There's different terms that are thrown around. Content editor. Content editor. Uh, But they're not like fixing commas and doing your spelling and typos. They're not a grammar Nazi. In fact, the really good ones aren't actually very good at grammar, right? (laughs) Because the skill um, or aren't necessarily good at grammar because the skill at being good at architecture is a totally different skill than knowing how to plug in a light fixture and get it installed correctly. And it requires big picture thinking as opposed to like detail thinking. And so it's almost a fundamentally different person. And I'm always suspicious when I'm like, oh, I found somebody who's good at both. I'm like, are they really good at both? Or are they good at one and they just kind of dabble in the other? I'm much better as a developmental editor. I do a lot of developmental editing, but I, as I'm doing it, if I see something else, I go ahead and mark it because it's one less thing that could get missed. But 
I don't consider myself a proofreader or a line editor by any stretch. That's right. And now you can, like if it's just proofreading that you need, there's actually pretty good software that will help you catch a lot of typos. Grammarly Pro is really impressive in how much it can catch even stylistic things that a grammar uh, that an editor will point out and people are like oh but grammarly pro is a hundred dollars a year i'm like yeah but an editor is going to be a lot more expensive and grammarly pro you don't have to wait right you push a button it instantly gives you that feedback and it's not perfect and it doesn't replace an editor completely but it will help the editor work on more important things it's a, it can be that really good final after you've gone through all the edits because once you edit something and someone else looks at it, and then they make a change, and you edit again. Every change introduces the possibility of more error. And so with the Grammarly kind of thing, it can go through, and after you've made all those changes, it can go through, and it can go, hey, look what you did here. And nobody would have known it. That's right. So for most books, and on all traditionally published books, go through this process. There's the architectural edit, the developmental edits, the first round of edits with a certain editor. You may go back and forth a few times with this editor as you get the story fixed or you get the ideas edited if it's nonfiction. Or put the proposal in that I didn't put in that they, she really <laughs> wanted. I was so mad. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so then you're done with that and you've got all the you know major pieces in. Then you go to the next person who's a separate person and this is the copy editor. This is the traditional editor everyone thinks of, the grammar Nazi who makes sure that every verb and every subject are in complete agreement all the time, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And you go through rounds of edits there. And then the book gets typeset, and there's a final editor called a proofreader who looks at the very final, you know, Letters on the typeset page, whether it's a paper or e ebook, and does a final pass. And everyone's like, oh, I don't need a proofreader, proofreader <laughs> because my copy editor is amazing. But even if your copy editor caught 100% of the problems, you still need a proofreader because errors get introduced by accident during the typesetting process. And so that's why – and – when the words are rearranged on the page, you know, and how many words are in each line, you notice things differently. And it's important to have somebody look at it in the version that the reader is going to look at it. Even if you get 99.9% of every single error in your 100,000 word manuscript, that's still 100 errors that could be lurking. Why would you not have someone take one last look? And don't get me wrong, every single one of my books has something in it. But that's the beauty of indie publishing is that I can go fix it. The errors that are in my, and they're not very many, there's only a couple, but there are a couple of errors in my traditionally published book and I can't do a thing about it. And it drives me insane. <laughs> that's right. There's one advantage of print on demand in eBooks. You can go back after the fact and, and fix errors uh, retroactively, but you can't do that if there's a thousand books in a warehouse. You can't go into the Sharpie and, and fix nope. them. And, and you may be, and those of you listening are like, but I thought we we're talking about money. Like, how do we get off on the editing? It's like, but this is a really important part. And, and it really illustrates the thinking that you need to have if you want to be a professional author, the kind of author who puts bread on the table and actually contributes financially to the, to the family budget. You need to be willing to spend money and do things right. Because right. the difference between doing it right and doing it wrong is the difference between making thousands or tens of thousands of dollars with a book and making hundreds of dollars with a book. Like it's an order of magnitude different. It also potentially is the difference between making hundreds of dollars and hundreds of thousands of dollars, right? You want to be one of the top books in your category because those are the authors um, that make the good money. And if you're not the, you know, in the top two or three 
authors in your category, uh, if you can't beat them in, um, you know, ranking, you beat them in numbers, right? <laughs> where right. you have more <laughs> books out. And, and uh, if each book brings in enough and they all wash each other's faces and collectively they can bring in a really good amount of money. Well, and they, and they they lead to the next book. I can't tell you how many people said, you know, I found this book. It was free. I bought it. And I now have just plowed through 30 books. And I'm like, thank you. you know? <laughs> that, that's, you know, what's, what's the average uh, pr- price for one of your books? Uh, when they come out, I do a pre-order of $4.99. And on the day after launch day, I move them up to $5.99. And they stay there for a year. And then they come back down to four ninety nine. And after I have several in a series, I'll drop that first one in the series to like two ninety nine. Okay, so let's say there's a four dollar average price for books across thirty books. We're looking at a hundred dollars plus minus the cut that Amazon takes. You're looking at seventy to a hundred dollars for that person that binged through thirty books. That's a lot more than you would make on just one book that was full price. Yes. Well, not only that, but it also you have. Like I have, I so because I have over 70 books, I put one book free every single week because I can, and I don't even go through my whole backlist every year. And doing that, I can watch about 10 days, seven to 10 days after that free day ends, I start getting page reads on that book and I can watch it on my book report and I'm going, okay, yeah, they've kicked in now, you know? And so it's, it, you, when you have a lot to work with, you have a lot to work with. Yeah, and let's talk about that because you didn't start off with 70 books. How do you approach your writing so that you're able to write fast enough? So that, And how long did it take you to get to 70 books? Um, I've been doing this since 2010. And so I've been doing it for 10 years and I have 70 books. So Okay, so you're writing about seven books a year. So that's a book every couple of months, every month to two months. So how do you write books that quickly? Walk us through your process, because I know you have a very disciplined process for creating books. I do. So um, one thing I do is we live in the middle of nowhere. And so for ACFW, it's three hours south of us, one way. For your regional meeting. This isn't the annual meeting. This is to like hang out with other authors. This is the chapter. Yeah, this is the chapter. Our chapter is in um, Orange County. So it's a three-hour drive, and that's without traffic. Once you hit (laughs) traffic on the 15 or, yeah, 91, then you're in some trouble. But so what we do is um, all the way down there, I'm plotting books on my audio app on my phone phone thing or on a digital recorder, depending on what I have with me. And I plot the entire book all the way down there. And a lot of times I will then delete that and plot again after I get done with the first one, because I usually get a better story if I delete that first one and then have to try to remember what I was doing and where I was going. I get better ideas. So that first one often gets deleted. And I discovered that by accident when it got deleted. (laughs) Uh, I was like, wait, this is better. And so, you know, I do that. But so I usually get at least two books, sometimes four plotted between Ridgecrest and Orange County. And then, you know, on the way there and back. So I've got a backlist right now of about 50 to 60 books that are waiting for me to write them. All I have to do is take that, transcribe it, and those become scene lists. And I just I just copy each thing and paste it into my Scrivener thing, and then I'm ready to go. So when I sit down, it tells me exactly what I'm going to write because I've already planned this out. This is the, as much outlining as I do. And then I sit down and I write, and I write all night long. 
And 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 you that's not you mean that in a literal sense. So when you yes. say all night long, you start writing at ten at night, nine at night, and nine you're writing until four six or five in the morning. In the morning. Yeah, yeah, six. Which allows you to not be writing while your kids are around. Yes. And wanting all of my attention. And mind you, you have to remember my youngest is fifteen. So I don't I'm not as evil as I sound when I say that. <laughs> Yeah, because you do have to get some sleep. But I will say, I've worked with a lot of authors who are able to rapidly write. And audio as a piece of their process is very common. Uh, so it, And it's interesting because where they work the audio in is different. So you're working the audio in really early. A more common way I see it is they outline it on a piece of paper. right? They put together the structure and their outline. And then they dictate the first draft. It's another common way to do it. But what you're doing is you're just kind of brainstorming the broad plot. And then you take that audio, you create scenes from that, and then you sit down and you write the scenes. And a point I want to illustrate here is that what works is different based on the author. Right? So what, what I'm not saying is that you have to do it the way Shatona is doing it. But what I am saying is if you want to make professional money, you have to approach it in a professional way, which means figuring out and then following a process where you're consistently creating quality content quickly because excellence is not quality it's quality quickly anybody can be excellent if they spend forever doing it um what makes an excellent plumber is not the guy who can fix the leak it's the guy who can fix the leak before it floods the whole house (laughs) amen (laughs) well and one of the things that is really important to note is that it wasn't comfortable for me at first with the audio I'm driving down the road talking to myself in the car. That felt really weird. Listening to my own voice, I don't like my voice. It uh, drives me crazy. I have a very nasal, frustrating voice. But I had to make myself just keep trying and trying. And it was awkward and it was stilted. And at first it was like, this is a waste of time. But I I just had this feeling that it was the right thing to do. And it's interesting because right after I got good at it, is when I started seeing this explosion of dictation everywhere. And I'm thinking, we're all thinking the same thing. <laughs> but it, it made a big difference just making myself doing the uncomfortable to make it become comfortable. And what software do you use for your dictation? Um, I When I do this, I'm using my voice app on my phone or on a tablet or my digital recorder. So you're using the built-in voice yeah. app on, yep. on an iPhone, just the generic... Okay. Mm-hmm. And and then you're transcribing it yourself. Yes. I, because that's part of my process. Sometimes I don't have time. Like if I find out I need to have a book done for a collection at XYZ time and I need to write that now, I'm like, oh, great. I don't have time to transcribe it myself. So I'll send that off to be transcribed. But usually part of the process is once I get that and I'm listening and I'm typing it in, it it cements the idea in my head. It's like that, that dual thing you do. And it also it helps generate new ideas so that I'm adding new ideas as I'm doing that. So it's a much better process for me to do it myself instead of letting the computer do it for me. And you're probably not bringing in all the ideas that you brainstormed in the car, right? You're doing almost like an initial edit in a sense where you're adding some new things, you're cutting. And so the qual- there's a jump in quality from that initial audio brainstorm to that first draft. And then you start editing from there. Yeah, it's unbelievable what the difference is there. And I have had to pull over on the side of the road because it was unsafe for me to drive because I was laughing so hard at what the ideas that I had come up with. <laughs> the, pe- the people look at you weird, but you know what? I'm used to that. It's Orange County. Everyone's weird. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> You'll fit right in. Everyone's yeah. clogging up the roads, blaming everyone else for clogging up the roads. It's classic, exactly. Uh, classic <laughs> California. So we're, we're almost out of time, but um, I want to go uh, back to the marketing real quick because I, I love what you're saying about writing productively. And this is a, a key part, right? You got to figure out how to write faster so that you have more books that you can work with, right? Because one of your strategies with marketing is giving away a free book and having an email list to do that. Walk us through some of the things that you've done to build that email list so that people know you have a free book uh, for them to download. Well, one of the first things, obviously, every single one of my books has at the beginning and usually at the end, but not always at the end. And that's only because I didn't think of it at the beginning. But I, it's like, sign up, you want this. But then at the end of my books, I'll say, have you read this? You know, if you liked this, here's this, here's the first chapter. Um check this out. But then I I take that. And so when I have the freebies, I'll say, you know, you want to sign up for my newsletter, because not only do you get my short story collection, which only one of those stories has anything to do with any of my books, it's a really stupid collection. Don't make that mistake. But, <laughs> but not only that, but you can, you'll get news. What book is coming out free for the next five days? Every single week you get this. I have a, I have 3000 people on my list and that's not a boatload, but most of them have been there for a really long time. They stay and they stay because, and they get a newsletter every single week almost. And even, like when I was gone for pretty much three months, I almost didn't send out a newsletter for three months because I was gone and my life was tied up in taking care of mom. And they were still there when I got back. I didn't get any unsubs because I disappeared for three months. They were praying for my mom. My I really nurture relationships with my readers. I send out birthday cards. I, you know, when they I see something they've posted somewhere, I'm like, I'm praying for you. And I stop right then and I pray for them. And they know it. And they because they know I care about them, they know that they're not just dollar signs to me. That relationship with the readers is so powerful, especially when you're first getting started, right? You can't do that for a million people, but you can do that for a few hundred. And if you only have a few hundred people on your email list, make sure that they're all feeling really blessed to be on uh, your email list. Where can people, if people want to subscribe to your email list just to see what you're doing, because you're there's some ideas that they can steal by subscribing Absolutely. to your, to your email steal list. Absolutely, <laughs> where, where can people uh, find out more about you and how can people get on your email list? Well, there's my website at shatona at shatona.com. And if you want just the newsletter page, there's a slash news. And one of the things that that does is it you sign up for the newsletter, but you also have the option of signing up for my blog posts, which are mostly book reviews, but not completely. And then for uh, I do a serial novel. I, it's been on hiatus since mom got sick, but um, I send out an episode every week to people who want it. They have to sign up for that separately because I don't want to bombard emails <laughs> inboxes with all these emails if they don't want it. But so they you get the news. News, or you can get the news in the blog post, or you can get the news in the blog post and the and the installment of the story. So it, it gives people a taste of what I'm about. All right. We will have a link to both of those in the show, uh, show notes. In case you don't know how to spell Shatona, don't worry. Just go to christianpublishingshow.com. We'll have a link to it. Uh, Shatona, any final tips or encouragement? Don't be afraid to just be yourself. Do what's comfortable for you, but also push your comfort zone. If I hadn't ever pushed my comfort zone, I would not have been able to maintain my, uh, I can't think of the word I'm looking for. I, I wouldn't be able to maintain what I'm doing for as long as I'm doing it if I hadn't said, no, I need to make people more important than me. 
that is excellent. And it's really important. I love what you're saying about, you know, play to your strengths, be who you are, but also push yourself to grow better strengths, right? Don't be, it's okay not to be okay. It's not okay to stay that way. As John Burke often says, and, and that's true with her writing too. You start with where you are, you play to your strengths. Don't try to become someone else. Don't put on Saul's armor. If you're a slinger, you're an agile, you know, slinger, don't put on Saul's armor, but also don't be content staying a shepherd boy forever. There is a time where you stand up and you take a stand against the giant and you become something more than what you were before. And that's what's so fun. It's what's fun about fiction, right? Our characters are growing and evolving, but it's also fun about real life because hopefully as we grow in the Lord, we are growing and evolving as well. Um, So thank you so much for listening. And Shatona, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you for having me, Thomas. It was a lot of fun. Our sponsor today is the Christian Writers Market Guide 2020. This is the most comprehensive and highly recommended resource on the market for finding an agent, an editor, a publisher, a publicist, a writing coach, or a place to sell whatever you are writing. Wherever you are in the writing journey, from beginner to seasoned professional, the guide will help you find what you're looking for. Over 1,000 curated listings, including more than 200 book publishers, 150 periodical publishers, 40 agents, 200 freelance editors and designers, podcasts, and much more. It even includes a denominational index where you can find publishers that fit your particular denominational distinctives. You can get it online at christianwritersmarketguide.com or in print edition on amazon.com. Thank you for listening to The Christian Publishing Show. For more information and to get episodes delivered to your phone automatically, visit christianpublishingshow.com.